The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from Genesis 38, 11 through 19, and 24 through 30. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shuach's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hera the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son Shelah and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. And she, but as he drew back his hand, behold, the brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Kathy, for reading that passage of scripture again. Uh, Good morning, everyone. My name is Paul Lim. Uh, For those of you who do not know me, uh, I served here since uh, 2016 as a scholar in residence. And almost once a month, I get to uh, preach on texts sometimes like this. So um, 
All right. Well, and uh, it's also been my delight to serve as a professor at Vanderbilt University in the history of Christianity area. So it's uh, kind of between those uh, two positions, I get to really see the best of uh, what the city has to offer. And as so many people are coming into Nashville to learn about what it has to offer and what CPC and Vanderbilt are offering as well. So um, let's pray once again as we uh, look at the word of God. Gracious God and glorious Lord, we thank you for this word. Though it's a very challenging and even disturbing passage in, in some ways, help us to see you, help us to encounter the living God. Be with every heart that is here. May you open them according to your sovereign purpose. May you speak to them. May we indeed be able to leave here saying we have encountered the living God through the word proclaimed and and through the Eucharist that we got to participate in and through the fellowship of believers, may all of them contribute to our edification and to your glory. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So um, caveat number one, um, I did not choose today's text. I did not come up with a title. Um, and it's always a great challenge for me. It brings out the best of me as a student of the Bible and as a speaker to be given a text, to given a title, and to really work with it. And I think that's one of the greatest privileges that I get to have as part of this uh, team of uh, speakers and preachers here at our church. And so, uh, and caveat number two, a more important one than that is, if you think that the passage that we have just read is, whoa, what is that? it cannot have anything to do with the gospel, then you are really missing the entire point of the gospel. Let me say that again. If you think that, you know, this passage that we have just read, and we'll study it in depth, really has nothing to do with the gospel story because it's about some family rupture and relationships that have gone awry, then we're really missing the point about the gospel. So again, three days after Thanksgiving, and that means in addition to eating more turkey in two days than uh, you would the entire year. At least that was the case for me. I went to two fabulous Thanksgiving meals and ate lots of turkey and stuffing or dressing, whatever you call it. Uh, and one was smoked and the other had a gravy and really fantastic. But along with those, uh, you know, fabulous Thanksgiving meals, we also experienced various dimensions of family. Some of us experienced the presence of families both in pleasurable and painful ways. Others of us experience the absence of families in those settings. As a recent survey noted, people's experience of being emotionally and psychologically unwell tend to spike and maybe even reach their peaks between November and December of each year, basically between Thanksgiving and Christmas. No holiday meals would be complete without some concoction of crazy stories we hear sometimes around the dinner table over eggnogs or glasses of Coke or one extra scoop of ice cream or wine, often about family members. Some of those stories are purely intended as jokes without any shred of evidence of facts, whereas other stories are altogether too painful and detailed to be fabricated. Among a plethora of accounts of crazy and zany types, I think it would be very hard to top this one from today's scripture reading. After I read today's text at home, when I learned that I'm kicking off the Evidence Series 2021, I read it, reread it, and I said to myself, geez, 
Pulp Fiction or Squid Games or Game of Thrones as nothing in terms of content advisory over this story of Tamar and Judah. So if you are under the age of 11, I, I, parents, please decide as to what you want to do because I'm going to tell this story. I'm not going to give you some sanitized version of it. So let's go, right? You ready? All right. So imagine, imagine you're at a holiday table and your uncle, always got to be an uncle, <laughs> tells you that, hey, did you know, did you know that your dad is also basically your grandpa. What? What did you just say? I said, your dad is also basically your grandpa. Well, you're not laughing actually. You're these words. You may be laughing initially and then your face kind of tenses up and you say, what? how can that be true? This makes no sense. You're confronted with three impossible propositions. Number one, how can my dad be my grandpa? Number two, what was my grandpa doing with my mom to catapult me into this world? Number three, why did this person use the word basically? You're either my father and grandfather simultaneously or not. What do you mean he's basically your grandpa and father? Well, that would exactly be what Perez and his twin brother Zara would have heard around their ancient festival dinner settings, at least once in their life. They would have heard, wait a minute, you're telling me that this person who is basically my grandfather is my dad? I knew he was my dad, but he's also my grandfather? I don't understand. So this is our Advent sermon series number one. And here's a very, very important point. And I'm actually really, really glad to be preaching from this text. Because the more I delved into it, the more I realized that this is about the gospel. Advent celebrates the coming of God in human flesh. As the eternal word of sinful humanity to live among us, to die for our sins as our covenant mediator and penal substitute and all the theological accoutrements that go with that as a perfect human fulfillment of all the requirements of the law and the covenant that was established between God and Adam or with the Adam's family. As you look at the genealogy of Matthew, we notice three these poignant words. This is a genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Sounds perfect, right? Yes, it does. We start with Abraham, who was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. So far, so good. And here's a kicker. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. The one crucial parenthetical detail that Matthew does not include here, since to do so would be too scandalous, I think, was that not only was Tamar the mother of Perez and Zerah, but she was also Judah's daughter-in-law. One dysfunctional family. As many of the children are aware, Adam's family too right now is out. And I think a lot of people are watching it. If you thought that the Adam's family, the Hollywood version, was messed up or dysfunctional weird, you ain't seen the real OG Adam's family a version of which we are reading right now. Adam's family, get it, right? Okay, all right, why is it there? Why is that story there and what's the purpose? What is the purpose of inclusion of that story in Genesis 38 as well as in Matthew's genealogy? And here's a real kicker. Why is Tamar the first woman mentioned in the New Testament? She is 
and she as we will study might not be the type of person or might be the type of person whom you like to listen to the genealogy, genealogy of Jesus, the God incarnate, the savior of the world of whom ancient prophets foretold with eager anticipation and expectation and angels long to see. Among other things we can say about Tamar, and believe me, there has been a lot of accounts, a number of accounts written about Tamar. She has been heralded as the first ever feminist human rights activist who fought against the oppressive systems of patriarchy to gain some semblance of equality and dignity. I think there is a lot of truth to that. Although, I must say that to call her a feminist would be a bit anachronistic for sure, but that is not to take away from the real helpful insights that I've gleaned. Yet, it is an accurate description of her work if we say that Tamar was a fighter for justice when justice was taken away from her by someone in her family, namely her husband, namely by her brother-in-law, and also by her father-in-law. Tamar is also, as the title indicates, a victim of circumstances, and as such, her story provides true hope for those who find themselves in similar situations. Tamar is a all, someone who had to swim through a stinking pool of toxic family relationships. And if you thought that God was not paying attention or that you had been given up to this terrible situation or situations of life in your life, in my life, this story of Tamar reminds us that God is still with us and for us in the line of Judah. So for the rest of the sermon today, I would like, to, uh, I'd like for us to think about Tamar and the three relationships of Tamar. Number one, Tamar and her husbands. Number two, Tamar and Judah, her father-in-law. Number three, Tamar and the Lion of Judah, her descendant and her creator. I told you relationships are pretty complicated in the Adam's family, right? And here it is, that how can this Lion of Judah be both her descendant and her creator? So let's go right along to the first point, Tamar and her husbands. It can also be called Tamar's rejection. So I know that we read from uh, verse 11 of Genesis 38 for public reading of scripture just earlier with Kathy White. However, to, to get a good grasp of Tamar's tangled web of relationships, we need to read from verse 6 of the chapter. So if you have Bibles, it'll be great if you could turn to it, whether on your phones or actual print versions. So let's get the kind of family context established. Judah, one of the protagonists of this story, antagonist perhaps, had three sons, Er, Onan, and Shelah, right? Er, Onan, and Shelah. The oldest, Er, is the guy who's barely mentioned in the Bible, just basically one line. He was just so wicked that God decided to just take him out. End of story. Verse 7 tells us rather succinctly that Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, that the Lord put him to death. Bam! So Tamar became an instant widow. Onan is Er's younger brother, and according to the Leveret law of marriage, you are called to be the person to help your sister-in-law become pregnant and carry on the family lineage. This is a very important um, kind of ancient ancestral kind of uh, uh, customs that were established. So basically, if you have sons and if your oldest son dies without being able to have a child, then the second oldest son was supposed to 
play the role of the older son, the deceased son, by having um, sexual relations with your sister-in-law so that she can become pregnant and the child that will be born will not be his son or daughter, but the child that belonged to your deceased brother. Get it? Right? And that was perfectly legitimate. That was, in fact, the, the, the recommended method of families to continue on their gene genealogical accounts and to, in, to continue on their sense of integrity and wholeness as family units and communities. And that was perfectly what was uh, encouraged and recommended and enforced even. So Onan is someone who's now told that. So Onan is Ur's younger brother, and according to that marriage, he was supposed to do it. But his refusal to impregnate uh, Tamar, or Tamar, led her to his sudden demise and death. So why was Onan put to death? In verse 10, we read these words. It says, basically, that they offer a very important and, uh, and similar theological interpretation. What Onan did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. What was at the core of Onan's wickedness? Verse 9 tells us that since Onan knew that the offspring and child would not be his legally, meaning that this child, daughter, or son would be counted as, remember, heir's child, not Onan, so he decided to be a petulant and selfish child of Judah, not cooperating with his father's wish for family lineage and continuity. So then every time he would have um, sexual relations with his sister-in-law, he would ensure that she would not become pregnant. So, don't need to go into all the details. Children, you can ask your parents and you can explain any way you like, all right? So, uh, Tamar has had two husbands. The important point is that Tamar has had two husbands and neither of whom seems to be a spectacular example of faithful husbandry. Let's just say that. Er was just downright wicked and Onan flagrantly flouted the cultural mandate which was known as leveret marriage. But there we are. Tamar experienced rejection from her husbands. The first one coming from his own evil desires that did not consider the well-being of his wife, and the other coming from his dis disobedience to the importance of family structure and guidelines and communal expectations. So no matter how you slice it, Tamar became a victim of spousal abuse of obligations. It's a little heavy, I realize, to talk about it as the first sermon of the Advent series and the first Sunday after Thanksgiving, and yet, and yet, when we recognize the variety of people's experiences with our families, a church like Christ Presence Size will have varieties of family experiences. And perhaps we can, some of us can deeply resonate with this. She might have felt rejected not just by her husbands, but perhaps by God as well. Somehow, I wonder whether she began to think, is it my fault? Somehow, did I have something to do with it? Am I partly to blame? We really have no way of knowing what Tamar or Tamar must have gone through except for grieving twice over and grief being her known vocabulary and, and state of being, state of her existence. Not only grief, but also shame. Shame of not being able to have a child to carry on the family honor, tradition, and identity. So while the text does not say it explicitly, I wondered often if Tamar might have thought that she might have something to do with that disaster that befell her husbands. It happened to her, not to her friends, not to her siblings, and not to other members of her community as far as we can tell. So let me try to illustrate it this way. So one of my favorite movies of all time, aside from Shawshank Redemption, is Good Will Hunting. 
Goodwill Hunting. Some of you may be familiar with that movie. I highly recommend it. If you haven't watched it, it really is a powerful film about a number of things, but one of them that, that shows up, and one of my favorite scenes in Goodwill Hunting is when Sean McGuire, played by the late Robin Williams, tells Will Hunting, played by Matt Damon, these very, very important words. It's not your fault. These five powerful words, it is not your fault, can be words of redemption, reconciliation, and the gospel of the advent of reset button of your life records. Because as you may remember from the scene of the movie, uh, Will Hunting is a super smart guy. He solves these mathematical problems that none of the MIT students and also professors can actually solve. And he works as a janitor at MIT and he just has a real kind of takes the mickey out of the you know, mathematicians by solving all of these problems on the board. And he's a high school dropout and has a really, really torrid family story, abuse and all of those things. And so, and, and Sean McGuire is assigned as the person who's supposed to see him and try to bring some sense and brings some semblance of therapy to, to Will Hunting. And they have this kind of breakthrough moment when, when uh, Sean McGuire is holding a, a, uh, a binder of records, all the records of abuse and all that, especially from his father. And he's holding it and says, you know what, this, this is not your fault. It's not your fault. And Matt Damon pushes him back and says, hey, don't, don't mess with me. Don't do this to me. Don't do this to me. And says, don't, don't, don't do it. And Sean McGuire will not relent. He says, no, 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 no. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. I wonder whether Tamar or Tamar might have felt that way. Maybe it's my fault that these things happen. Tamar felt victimized by her circumstances. She feels utterly and absolutely powerless. Because a woman in this context, widowed twice over, has very few kind of remaining structures of support, except for immediate family. Her husbands are dead. The one who's supposed to be your husband through leverage marriage is too young. Though he is now of age, the father-in-law is stepping in, creating a wall of hostility and to basically make it impenetrable. And so there you are. And this is the story. For some of us, carry with us that impossible burden of guilt and fault and responsibility that may not actually be yours at all. I think I know a thing or two about that myself. That leads me to my second point, Tamar and Judah, her father-in-law. It can also be called Tamar's rights. Imagine yourself being Judah for a second, okay? Imagine yourself that you've had three sons, two are dead, two have died. And they weren't your best boys, you know, they were kind of naughty bunch, and, but they're nonetheless your boys, right? And they're your sons. One of them was so bad that just God took his life away. And the second one wasn't going to do what, what was required of your kind of religious and cultural communities, and so he too died. So basically, you are now, you know, 0 for 2, and you still have no child that is going to be a grandson or granddaughter, and you're a little bit up the creek, a little, you know, here. So what do you do? You have one son left, his name is Shella, and Shella is young and is growing, is growing, you know, and is growing in leaps and bounds, and he is supposed to be marrying uh, your daughter-in-law named Tamar, Tamar. What are you likely to do? Are you likely thinking, okay, I cannot wait until Shella becomes, I don't know, 16, 17, 18, so that he can marry Tamar? Or quite the opposite. Will you be thinking, okay, hang on, I got to rethink this one because I'm not sure whether she's part of the problem. And that's exactly what we find here. 
by the way, and by the way, did you know that this story is literally an interlude between the selling of Judah's younger brother in chapters 36 and 37? Joseph, you know, they're, they're selling this Joseph guy with a multicolored coat and Joseph's dangerous encounter with Potiphar's wife that shows up in chapter 39. So literally sandwiched between these two accounts. It is almost as if the writer of Genesis is reminding the readers that, oh, you think the story is bad that 10 brothers sell one of their own brethren into slavery. Wait till you read this one. And there we have today's text. There was also another th uh, crucial theological purpose of including this story for the writer of Genesis or subsequent editors, I suppose, who in cooperation with the Holy Spirit uh, the Holy Spirit of creation of all things who stirred up the waters of human creativity and storytelling to give us the Bible as we have it today, thought that by including these sordid stories of spectacular human failures, they can continue to highlight the covenantal faithfulness of God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. So that Israel's fidelity and identity was not predicated on Israel's own faithfulness, ultimately, the business of covenant keeping will be carried out by the one who initiated the covenant itself. That is the triune God, the God of Tamar, the God of Judah, the God of Perez, the God of Zerah. So back to our story in verse 11. Read with me if you have your Bibles. Judah basically tells Tamar, Tamar that listen, your only remaining brother-in-law who is, according to our law, supposed to be your next husband, but he's a bit on the young side, so go back to your family and live as a widow there until basically we call you to come back and to kind of consummate this relationship by marrying Shelah. What he was asking was, in and of itself, not a terrifying thing to ask at all. There were a good number of widows and so much so that throughout the ancient Near Eastern context, societies were reminded that they had a communal obligation and ethical responsibility to take care of their widows among them. And further, that the, the way that you treat your widows among you was going to be the way that you can tell what a healthy, morally healthy society and community that you were. Tamar just happened to be widowed twice. But notice with me in the second half of verse 11. It says, Judah feared Shelah may die too, just like his brothers. Ah, we see the heart of Judah. He is afraid, and obviously so, and understandably so. If you were Judah, wouldn't you think the same thing? Two of your boys have died, wicked though they were, but then they were supposed to be the wife, I mean the husband of, of Tamar, and, and Tamar is alive and well, both your sons have died, the third one is now in waiting, and what are you going to do? So it seems like Judah is sort of second-guessing whether Tamar might be the bad luck charm here. I can understand personally Judah's hesitation about giving Shelah to Tamar. This will be the third son of Judah, third and the only remaining son of Judah that Tamar will come to know as husband. And given the track record of his sons in marriage bed with Tamar, who knows? I wondered if Judah had regretted that he had made uh, Tamar that promise about Shelah, wait for him until he grows up. So as life goes, as the story goes, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, the Canaanite, died. And after her passing, and after he was consoled, he met up with his old pal, Hira, H-I-R-A-H. Whatever else we can say about Hira, it seems that as a good friend, he was determined to help Judah overcome his grief. Grief therapy, as we will see, leads 
uh, Judah to look for a quick escape. Tamar realized that this might be her only chance to reclaim her rights to leverage marriage. So guess what happened, right? So let's say your father-in-law, let's, let's say for all of us, let's say we are widowed twice and we're living in with our parents and we're supposed to be waiting for our father-in-law to send a text message or I don't know, whatever, you know, and let me know that, that things are going to be good and you can come back and marry the third son. But you hear something kind of disturbing. You hear that your father-in-law is going to be in your neck of woods, but he didn't tell you that your friends are telling you. And then, and you're now thinking, okay, what's going on here? And you also know the fact that the young son is now of marriage, of the age to be married. So you're thinking, what gives? What's going on here? Now look at what is happening here. She finds out from her friends in the community, it, done, it didn't come from Judah, but from her community. She might have heard the village gossip. Geez, it's been awful long since Tamar came back to live among us. We like her a lot, but, but what's going on? Her father-in-law, the dude who's, only like, who's not likely to keep his promise, is coming our way. So now they're thinking, what should we do about this? So we hear in verse 14 that she decides to reclaim her human rights by rightly demanding from her father-in-law the marital obligations he owed to her by giving Shala in leveret marriage. It's very important for us to understand that. So what she was demanding was legally hers to demand. She ought to be able to marry Shala now that he's old enough to marry, that what she's demanding was not extraordinarily kind of out of line at all. And what Judah was not willing to do was not cool at all. He should do that legally, though humanly speaking, if you have lost both your sons, now you're thinking perhaps, is this the right thing to do? Because she saw that Shelah was grown up and she had not been given to him in marriage. So what does she do? She decides that I'm gonna take matters into my own hands because her back is against the wall. She's absolutely desperate. And this, is, this may be her last chance because he's passing through your neck of woods. So you're gonna dress up, you're gonna actually take off your widow's garment and you're going to dress up in such a way that actually signals to Judah or anybody else in that community that she's a woman available for the night. And I can understand Tamar's bold scheme. And this is a very, very interesting uh, story. You can read it and I'll explain some of it. So veiled deceit on both sides. So obviously Tamar isn't going to tell Judah, hey, by the way, I'm your daughter. No, no, none of that. She doesn't tell him he never finds out until much three months later. And veiled deceit on Judah's part is that he's not keeping his end of the obligation, family obligation. The dark plot only thickens here. And it's uh, really kind of causing me to raise the question, as perhaps for you as well, where is God in all this? By the way, God is not mentioned at all in this passage of Scripture. The entire chapter, God is not mentioned, and yet God is very much there working throughout the circumstances. Hira, as I mentioned, is Judah's uh, a handler of Judah's affairs. And after Judah has a sexual encounter with a dis disguised prostitute who turns out to be uh, his daughter-in-law who was scheming to get justice and rights for herself, he finds out that his widowed daughter-in-law who was supposed, supposed to be sexually chaste and inactive had gotten herself pregnant by a man who had given her seal, his seal, and its cord and with his own staff as a pledge or collateral for his night of enjoyment. Are you with me so far? So things are getting pretty 
dodgy here. I mean, so at verse 24 shows us Judah in his most self-righteous moment. He hears about this. Hey, your daughter-in-law who's supposed to be just kind of, you know, being herself, a widow's self, has gone out and, and uh, played a harlot quite literally, and she's now pregnant. And he says, okay, bring her out and have her burned to death. Wow. Okay, if you're reading this story, you cannot but read Tamar as the first female action hero in Israel's history because what she says here, quite literally, moments before her burn to death, she says, oh, by the way, can you give this to my father-in-law? Because this is his seal. I, please tell him that I am made pregnant by this man who gave these things as a collateral because he couldn't pay me at that time. He gave me his seal with cord attached to it and his own staff. So whatever you can say, I am made pregnant, whatever you can say, I please tell him, as I'm about to be burned to death, that I am made pregnant by that person. Guess what? Judah says, oh, brother, they are mine. That's it. He realized, wait a minute, they're actually mine. And, and, and she was what? She's the one who actually was the temple prostitute. She's literally about to be burned to death, and yet she sends her father-in-law this message. I don't know about you, but I thought to myself as I read and reread this passage, Disney or Apple TV or Amazon Prime Video should do a special drama series of this, you know, kind of Tamar and her adventures. I mean, like, this is, like, truly, truly exciting and kind of eye-opening stuff. Verse 26, we find the words of first, first public repentance for personal sins in a spectacular fashion given by Judah. He says, I realize you know, that she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. He fesses up. He's like, I know why you did this. I know what the reasons are. So this is about her rights here. Um, and that leads me to the final point of the sermon today. Tamar and the Lion of Judah, her descendant and her Lord. It can also be called Tamar's restoration of dignity, beauty, and identity. So, you know, when I was given this text and I was like, I don't have a lot of insights that are just generating that from within my own head. So what does one do when you're kind of in short supply of insights? In Google, I trust. I Google some phrases. I Google literally Tamar, Jesus, Judah. And then boom, several websites came up. LisaPello.com from her website says something very powerful for me. Uh, and very helpful for me. She said, we saw that Jesus not only came to the world fractured and hurting, but fractured and hurting was right there in his own family tree. I found that so insightful. That Jesus came into a world that was fractured and hurting to the world, but also within his own genealogical kind of, in, in his own kind of, you know, the DNA, me or whatever, that, and Ancestry.com. I mean, imagine if you do Ancestry.com and you find out, wait a minute, I have a brother that I didn't know about? I have a half-sister? I mean, basically, Jesus does Ancestry.com and says, wait, Tamar is my great-great-great-great-grandmother, and this is a very interesting family context that you find. I also found this very uh, interesting website, an important website and helpful website called SheReadsTruth.com. I, I mean, you should have known about it, but I hadn't seen it until, like, literally, like, last week. I love that title. I mean, I love the name of the website, She Reads Truth, and... Uh, I subsequently found out that it has uh, people from Christ Press uh, involved in it, and uh, Rachel Myers and Amanda Williams as co-founders, and our own Patty Sauls and Melanie Rayner um, as regular contributors. And the entry, the, the, the particular entry that I saw was uh, written by Melanie Rayner, 
who I think is at Cool Springs as a ministry director, and, and she talked, her perspective on Tamar and Judas was enormously helpful. Uh, basically, she talked about how scandalous sin needs scandalous grace, which I thought was really worth of me to just park my theological vehicle and just kind of stay there for a while. Scandalous sin needs scandalous grace. Judas' sin was scandalous. Onan and Er's sin was scandalous. We can go on debating as to whether what Tamar did was righteous or not. I mean, we had a very fabulous Bible study over there at 10 o'clock between my first go at it and second go at this preaching. And, and really, but, you know, scandalous sin. I mean, any way you look at it, this whole story is not one that you would actually encourage your, you know, middle school child to read. In fact, I bet you, if you didn't see this in the Bible, you would not believe that this is part of what is called, again, Holy Bible. You wouldn't think that. And yet, I come back to the first question that I asked all of us. Why is it here? Why is it part of the Bible? What is the canonical function of stories like that of Tamar and Judah and so on and so forth? Okay, I'm turning and going home now, so uh, people who are sleeping, you can wake up, all right? So, I'm kidding. I, um, Scandalous in need, scandalous grace. Some of, and it's like this. In, in this Advent season, we think about, we make a categorical mistake if we think of Advent as nice candles lit, beautiful Christmas trees and gingerbread and, you know, gifts and presents and all that we do. Because at the core of the Advent is this messy story of humanity. Messy story of humanity tells us that none of us could save ourselves. We are of such kind that we have completely wrecked it, that I cannot fix this damaged vehicle myself, called my life, that I need to take it to somebody else because help has to come externally. Ever been, ever been hit in a car accident that's not, you know, and you, there's nothing you can do about that car, you have to take it somewhere? That's basically what it is. Some of you feel like, I got to wait until I got my act together, then and only then I can come to church, because then I'll be ready to come. No, remember these words, come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. Come right now. Here's the beauty of Tamar's inclusion in the genealogy of the Lion of Judah. As Revelation 5, 5 says, the only one who could open the scroll and break its seals to give us the true meaning of all of cosmic stories and strife and struggles was none other than the Lion of Judah, the Root of David. Furthermore, in Genesis 49, 10, Judah was told by his father as he pronounced future fate of all for his sons in a parental and prophetic fashion, Jacob told Judah that the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall, the, shall be the obedience of all the peoples. He's looking down the corridor of history in a prophetic fashion and says, you know what, it's not because of what you have done or haven't done, but by the sovereign purpose of God's choosing, it is going to happen. In this veiled and incomplete fashion, Jacob prophesied that despite the flawed nature of Judah's character and interactions, God's sovereign purpose of redemption will stand firm because the Lion of Judah who will come is none other than Jesus Christ. What God wills, will happen. Was Tamar a victim? Yes. Was she also merely a victim? No. 
Her sense of dignity, beauty, and identity can only be fully restored by the work of her descendant, who also happens to be her Lord and Creator. God's purposes are much, so much bigger than our worst mistakes, whether you are Judah, Tamar, or just you. God's restoring grace is so much deeper than our worst nightmares and deepest of shames. That's what this thing that we're about to participate in called the Lord's Supper is all about. Christ's body was broken for broken people. The church is supposed to be a fellowship of the broken people. It is not a fellowship of beautiful people. I've been at Vanderbilt for about uh, for 16 years now, 16th year, and I was talking to a former student, and I wanted to encourage him to go to this particular campus ministry. And I'll never forget what he said. He says, oh no, I can't go there. I said, why not? He goes, well, that's, that fellowship is only for beautiful people, people who have it together. And I do wonder, in this Advent season, as we are doing our great effort to invite our neighbors and invite our friends who haven't really encountered the living God in Jesus Christ in a meaningful way, what is our kind of messaging like as a church? I think what we need to go back to is, again, and as we do it every week, is going back to the basics. The Eucharist basically centers us. The Lord's Supper decenters us from our kind of self-absorbed kind of identities and re-centers us radically and fundamentally in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was broken for us so that we may be made whole. As I pray that we will, uh, I pray that you will come uh, in your hearts being ready and recognizing that the only way that I can be prepared is by recognizing that I cannot prepare myself. The only dessert I can bring with me is that I don't deserve it. The only kind of, you know, t token for this communion is that I am totally disqualified of any merit. And the only reason I can come to it is because just as Tamar, just as Judah, just as Perez, just as Zara, just as all of us could come to the table was by the invitation of God that has been made effectual by that wonderful one sufficient sacrifice of Jesus Christ. So let's pray and as we will come to the table of the Lord now. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you that you are the Lord of all of our stories, broken, fractured, flawed that they are. And you are also the one who has made us whole, who is reminding us of the wholeness that we have in Jesus Christ, that our health is only to be found in our relationship, in our relational connection to the living bread and the wine of all glad tidings. We thank you for being bro broken for us, and shedding your blood for our redemption. As we come to this table now, may you speak your words of truth, beauty, and goodness in an unforgettable fashion as we eat and drink of this table, which is a preparatory step for that great banquet that we'll participate in, Lord. So thank you for that reminder. Thank you for the reason for this Advent season, that we will learn that no matter where we might be feeling victimized or feeling like we have been forgotten and passed over, that you will remind us that you are ever near us and with us in Christ. And it is in his name and for his glory we prayed. Amen. Amen.